The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. There is some sense of competition between India and China with regards to its global outreach with vaccines. But I think India has a stronger track record in this space of manufacturing vaccines at a larger scale and that are affordably priced. The supporters of Prime Minister Modi, of which there are many, are quite proud for India to supply vaccines to other countries. But others have been critical of both the rollout of the vaccination program at home and of this big note of the Modi government to try and tell the world that India is the pharmacy to the rest of the world. In this episode, Home and Away, India's vaccine rollout on the world stage. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Like every other country across the globe, India is locked in a public health battle with coronavirus. But India has also become a major exporter of COVID-19 vaccines, and notably the world's largest donor to other developing countries. From mid-January to mid-February this year, India shipped over 16 million doses to 20 countries, mainly in South Asia, but also in Africa and the Americas. More than a third of these exports have been in the form of gifts. Vaccine Maitri, Hindi for vaccine friendship, is the name given to India's large-scale giveaway of vaccine doses, driven by a combination of humanitarian and diplomatic intentions, while at the same time issuing a soft power pushback against similar moves by China. But what risks does vaccine diplomacy carry for India? With the second highest caseload globally of coronavirus within its own borders, are critics at home right to question the wisdom of shipping vaccines overseas? Or is there real value in using pharmaceuticals for geostrategic advantage? And how did India become such a big vaccine and drug supplier to the rest of the world? Joining us to discuss these issues are political scientist Dr Pradeep Tunisia of the University of Melbourne's School of Social and Political Sciences and health policy researcher Dr Azad Bali of the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy at Australian National University. They joined us via Zoom. Welcome back Bali and welcome back Pradeep. Hi Ali. Thanks Ali, good to be here. Before we get to the issue at hand, vaccine diplomacy, if we can just touch on how India itself is faring in this pandemic, it's actually reported a gradual decline in COVID-19 cases in more recent times. And there's been a bit of speculation around about whether the pandemic might be starting to burn itself out in India. Bali, what's your understanding of how India is travelling? So if you recollect, India's initial response to the lockdown was very strict. Early last year, the government imposed a nationwide lockdown with very little forewarning to its citizens. And life was appended by this decision. And the lockdown threw entrenched social and economic fault lines into sharper relief. However, a year since the lockdown, we've seen novelty has largely returned in India. You don't see government leaders sort of cautioning citizens to wear masks or practice social distancing. The entire tone of the messaging has changed. 
So generally speaking, I would argue that there's a sense of normalcy and an attitude that everything is okay and prevalent in the community. I'm sure you do have pockets of elites and well-informed citizens that have protected themselves and continue to shelter in place, but this is a very small proportion. So if I put these numbers in context, as of the third week of February, India has had about 11 million cases so far, and 150,000 people have died after contracting the virus. But the 11 million cases accounts for about 10% of the global total. This headline number, however, needs to be adjusted for the size of India's population. And once we do that, India's cases per million or cases per capita or the death rate per capita are relatively low. India currently reports about 10,000 odd cases a day. And this is a far cry from the peak of the pandemic in September last year, when India was reporting 80 to 100,000 cases per day. There were reports of public hospitals being overwhelmed, private hospitals refusing to treat patients. So India has come a long way since the peak of the pandemic in September. Just this week, we've begun to see a small uptake in infections in two states in India. That's the state of Kerala and Maharashtra. But this is too early to tell if it's just a one-off event or the beginning of a more serious wave of infections. Pradeep, what's your sense? Do you think that uh, even though there has been a a decline in numbers and India appears to be doing better than the height of the pandemic, do you think the sense of normalcy is justified? I think the sense of normalcy that Bali is talking about is largely a function of COVID fatigue because 14,000 cases recorded on the 21st of February in India is still fairly high. But I think people have kind of become tired of one year, almost a year of lockdown and strict sort of social distancing. So a lot of people have returned to you know, work. People are going shopping. In fact, there's been a nearly a three-month-long protest by farmers in India where you have had thousands of people assembling at various you know, points around New Delhi. So there is a bit of element of fatigue, but it's kind of a mixed picture. On the one hand, there is a sense of normalcy, but at the same time, there is a risk that unless people took those precautions, there could be another wave of infections, particularly in some of the states like Maharashtra and Kerala. And of course, India has also started vaccinating. Bali, how ambitious is the Indian vaccination program? So the Indian vaccination program is very ambitious. So in December of last year, India, perhaps for the first time in its health policy history or public policy history, actually released a vaccine implementation plan. Um, it's really ambitious. They endeavor to vaccinate 300 million uh, citizens by August this year. Sort of similar to what other countries, India has triaged its population into cohorts. So the first cohort are 30 million frontline workers. These include sort of medical personnel and police officials. Um, And the second cohort are those uh, above the age of 50 who have comorbidities. And after these 300 million 
individuals or so are vaccinated, the vaccines will be available to the public. So right now it's begun its vaccination program in January and 11 million doses of the vaccine have been administered. There is insufficient data that's publicly available on the number of people that have been vaccinated and those that have received the first dose or multiple doses of the vaccine. And Bali, you talk about the vaccine, but in fact, there are two vaccines, aren't there, that that India has, one's homegrown and, and one is the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yes, that's right. So the first one is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which received regulatory approval earlier on. And this is manufactured by the Serum India Institute, the SII in Pune. It is the world's largest manufacturer of vaccines. And it has a capacity to produce 700 million doses annually. The second vaccine is Covaxin, India's indigenous vaccine, which has been produced by a company called Bharat Biotech, which also received regulatory approval late last year. This company has a relatively smaller capacity of vaccine production, and it currently can produce about 200 million doses. But all companies within India and around the world are trying to boost the vaccine manufacturing capacity. I know, of course, neither of you and myself included, we're not medical experts, but generally speaking, and in terms of the the conversation around this domestic vaccine, Pradeep, Covaxin, how much do we know about its efficacy and its safety? Because I do note that the stage three trial results are, are not published yet, even though it has been approved for emergency use. Yeah, both the AstraZeneca vaccine, which in India is known as Covishield, and Covaxin developed by Bharat Biotech. Both of these vaccines were approved for emergency use by the the regulatory authority in India. The Covaxin, it has gone through various trials, but the data for the third trial have still not been published, not been released. And in fact, the government, when the approval was granted, said that the emergency use of this vaccine would be part of the phase three trials. So, In a way, there is some sort of hesitation, both amongst the people and the medical professional, I think, about the co-vaccine. But it's a little bit like, you know, the vaccines from China and Russia, which have had similar issues, that their data have not been shared by the developers with the quality journals, or those vaccines have not been approved, you know, at the international level. But it's being administered, and so far we haven't received any reports of any bad reactions or side effects. So it seems to be working. So what's the public messaging around the vaccination program and and in terms of public campaigns to get people to take it up? So there is limited public information campaigns for vaccination that are underway right now. And this is something that will need to be done and need to be done quite urgently, because if you look at India's past efforts of vaccination, where they have been able to vaccinate a large proportion of the population relatively quickly, was with the global polio virus, which India managed to eradicate in 2011. And a key part of this in India's efforts to erase the incidence of polio was aggressive public information campaigns, which were layered with continuous political messaging, civil society actors and leaders playing a role, Bollywood celebrities, sports people, continuously reminding people about the importance of vaccination and getting vaccinated. And we see that largely absent this time around. 
And if they're going to reach their target of 300 million by August, do you see that as being vital? I see that being vital, especially because you see some of the preliminary reports that are coming out that uh, only one in 10 people have gone back for the second dose of the vaccine. So it's really important to build that trust as well as um, get the message out in the community that even though the virus may not be as virulent, future strains might be, and which is why you really have to get vaccinated. In fact, if I can come in on that uh... I think Bali is right that there hasn't been as much advertising using celebrities to advertise uh, in the vaccination program. There has been some on television networks, but there is also an interesting message. Every time I call people in India using just normal telephone, first I have to listen to a message from the government about the vaccination program in Hindi. You cannot really get through a person without listening to a message about vaccination. And Pradeep, do you see it, though, as vital to success, given the ambitious nature of that program? I think it will have to be. But fortunately, in India, there is no significant religious objections to the vaccines. As long as governments can say that there is no animal product, the vaccines are safe and they are consistent with the people's religious beliefs. Unlike in the United States or in Australia, for example, there is no strong movement against vaccines in India. So there is no significant anti-vaxxer movement in India, for example. And that, I think, is going to be a positive in this case. And I guess, Pradeep, I mean, the the point that Bali was making that, in fact, uh, the Serum Institute is the world's largest manufacturer of vaccines. So if we look at where India sits in the global world of pharma, I mean, they have a a very well-established position, don't they? India indeed does. I mean, India is believed to be the producer of nearly 60% of all vaccines in the world, not the coronavirus, but vaccines in general. And many countries, particularly developing countries, rely very heavily on imports of vaccines from India. So, for example, I was just looking at data for 2018. And in 2018, the top three countries you know, importing vaccines from India included Nigeria, Indonesia, and in fact, Pakistan. So you know, even Pakistan spent nearly $30 million in 2018 buying vaccines from India. So... India has been a reliable supplier of cost-effective vaccines for various kinds of conditions uh, to, to many developing countries around the world. It also supplies a, a very large chunk of generic drugs globally. Bali, how did India get to be, uh, well, I suppose, if we use the label that uh, India likes to use, pharmacy to the world? Yeah, so you have seen that, that phrase being used around a lot over the past few months. Um, and it's, uh, India's pharmaceutical journey could be traced back to the 1970s. So in 1970, India introduced the Patent Act, which essentially provided for a relatively weak patent regime, uh, where only the process of manufacturing was protected and the actual product that was produced was not necessarily offered patent protection. And the patent lasted only for seven years. So this in turn allowed many companies to reverse engineer pharmaceutical products and develop alternate processes without violating the regulatory and legislative instruments in place that govern the sector. So the Patent Act of 1970 largely created incentives for pharmaceutical companies to innovate only on the process of manufacturing drugs rather than to produce new drugs or invest in research and development. And this was layered with a sort of institutional environment 
environment which imposed a lot of constraints on collaboration with global pharmaceutical companies, which the confluence of both these um, sort of stymied research and development in the Indian pharmaceutical sector. Uh, this, however, began to change in the early 1990s when India began its economic liberalization reforms. Um, in the 1990s, you saw Indian pharmaceutical companies sort of compete with the global pharma companies to produce generic drugs. And this was further fueled when India had to implement the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights of the WTO, so TRIPS. And this came into effect in 2005. So this change in 2005 changed the incentives for Indian pharmaceutical companies, which now focus their energies away from sort of process innovation to sort of coming up with new products, partnering with global pharmaceutical companies, um, investing in new drug treatments, and as well biosimilars. So you've seen a real increase in research and development post-2005 in India, and you see many Indian companies partnering with global pharmaceutical companies to either do contract research and development, or as well as sort of jointly produced many pharmaceutical products. Pradeep, how much credit can the Indian government take for the position that India now holds in the, in the global pharma industry? Initially, after independence, Indian government did invest in pharmaceuticals production, largely because it was a very poor country. India also was not very open to international trade, and therefore Indian government did develop pharmaceuticals in public sector pharmaceuticals companies. But lately, over the last 30 years or so, much of the growth in India's pharmaceuticals industry has come from the private sector. Private sector working on its own or working in collaboration with international pharmaceuticals companies. So for example, one of India's largest pharmaceuticals company was a company called Ranbaxy. And Ranbaxy in fact was so successful that it was taken over by a Japanese company. On the other hand, government's involvement, I think is largely at the moment limited to you know, supporting innovation, creating a policy framework and providing some financial incentives to companies. But government is largely out of uh, the business of producing pharmaceuticals. So let's look at the, the issue we started uh, looking at, which was India's vaccine diplomacy. Pradeep, how many countries is India providing vaccines to and what sort of a scale are we talking about? There's over two dozen countries which have so far, by the middle of February, received vaccines from India. India began its own vaccination program on the 16th of January. But then within days, India sent uh, consignments of vaccines to Bhutan and Maldives. And later on, Bangladesh and Nepal also became the key recipients of uh, Indian-made vaccines. So at the moment, there are about a couple of dozen countries that are receiving vaccines from India. Some of them have only received uh, donations of vaccines. In other words, vaccines which have been sent to them uh, by Indian government uh, for free. And others have a combination of donations and purchases. Countries like Morocco, for example, who have received some donations, but largely they're paying for those vaccines. Because if we look, Pradeep, at the agreement to produce the AstraZeneca vaccine, part of that agreement is that I think it's 50% of what's produced in India must be used for vulnerable populations either in India or in other countries. 
Indeed. I mean, the Covishield vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is being produced by the Serum Institute of India, is being produced under license. So obviously, India is one of uh, several places where this vaccine is being produced. And as part of the licensing condition, often there are requirements that while part of the output would be used for domestic use, the manufacturing facility will also be used for export of vaccines out of India. And I think bulk of it is going to go to the WHO organized COVAX scheme. COVAX scheme, as you know, is a very large scheme. In total, there's about 18 billion US dollars have been committed to supply nearly 2 billion doses of vaccines, mainly to developing and you know, low and middle income countries. And India is part of the COVAX program, and so is China. And therefore, I think these vaccines from India, from the Serum Institute, are also going to be part of the, the COVAX scheme. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website which again you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by health policy expert Dr Azad Bali of ANU and by political scientist Dr Pradeep Tunisia of the University of Melbourne. We're talking about India's efforts at vaccine diplomacy and its soft power implications. And Bali, when we look at the specific countries that are being targeted for vaccine diplomacy, for donated vaccines, is it very much India's neighbourhood first policy? I'm not too sure if it's the policy is largely driven by a concerted effort to help those within the region um, at the outset. But having said so, I'm a bit more circumspect with India's global outreach for vaccines. Yes, India has played and does play a pivotal role in the global supply of vaccines. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the numbers of vaccines that it is sending across are far too small to play a meaningful role in the respective countries' vaccination drives. Um, the situation can rapidly change within India, as well as with the efficacy of the vaccine against most virulent strains of the virus. So 100,000 odd doses to El Salvador or 2 million doses to Bangladesh will not go a very long way in completing the vaccination drives in these countries. What do I take from that, Bali? Is it that you believe that their vaccine diplomacy is, is aimed at looking good, if not necessarily having a very big impact on the ground? I think so, because if you think about it, in 16 million doses that have been shipped internationally, and of course, they will continue to increase, and it will increase at a much faster pace in the coming months. But I don't see this playing a larger role. I think it's more aimed at Mr. Modi and the government's efforts to utilize diplomatic opportunities that the pandemic has presented to allow Mr. Modi to demonstrate leadership both within the region as well as at a global stage. And we also have to keep in mind the context in which um, India is sending out these vaccines. The entire discourse around 
the pandemic has been extremely vituperative and one only needs to look at the United States, for instance, where center straight relations are constrained, or even for that matter, Australia, where there's you know, continual bickering across national and state borders. So it is in this context of this sort of acrimonious discourse where India's relatively small gestures of sending around 16 million vaccines, you know, are amplified. Pradeep, let me ask you, do you think that's a fair assessment? I think India's vaccine exports, whether they're donations or whether they're sold to other countries, can play an important part, particularly in India's neighborhood. So when India sent the first shipment of vaccines to Bhutan and Maldives, the foreign minister of India tweeted that this was part of India's efforts to supply vaccines to neighboring and key partner countries. So that's the phrase. But it is consistent with India's neighborhood first policy. And I think India would not be able to meet the total needs of vaccines of countries like Bangladesh, certainly. It it could perhaps meet the needs of Maldives or Bhutan, but I think it can uh, supply because it is a major producer of vaccines. And it certainly would enhance India's image. Uh, India is in a so-called soft power if India is able to amp up its production of vaccines and supply those vaccines to neighbouring countries. So would you argue that it's equally humanitarian as it is strategic? It's a little bit like foreign aid, Ali. Uh, Foreign aid is never simply a part of charity. Foreign aid is given by countries like Australia or European Union and the United States, partly for selfish reasons, in other words, partly to increase their influence, And partly, of course, to do the right thing, to do the right thing by their own people and by the international community. And I think India's delivery of vaccines and drugs and the personal protective equipment, et cetera, to other countries is also partly driven by good intentions and partly, of course, by India's desire to have a greater geostrategic influence, particularly in its neighborhood. Well, indeed, it's going for a permanent seat at the UN Security Council, isn't it? Do you think there's any connection to that? You know, Prime Minister Modi and even before Prime Minister Modi, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh have always said that India is a constructive actor. India is a responsible player in the international community. And therefore, with 1.3 billion people, India has a legitimate right to have a permanent seat at the UN Security Council. And in fact, four out of the five permanent members of the Security Council have already publicly supported one day of India becoming a permanent member of the UN Security Council. China, in fact, is the only exception. And India has a number of claims to it. For example, India is one of the largest contributors uh, of UN peacekeeping troops to peacekeeping missions all over the world. India also has a very good track record when it comes to nuclear non-proliferation. So Despite developing nuclear weapons of its own, India has never been accused of exporting nuclear weapons technology or materials to other countries. So this, you know, foreign aid, and particularly in this case, in the case of coronavirus, providing vaccines and other pharmaceuticals to developing countries, and particularly in its neighborhood, is generally, I think, being seen as a positive gesture. I mean, that, of course, it's not without resistance. So, for example, even in countries like Bangladesh and Maldives, where these vaccines have been supplied, there has been some pushback. So if you look at social media in Maldives and Bangladesh, along political lines, 
they've also been opposition. So you've had people saying on Twitter and social media that we don't need your vaccines, you know, take your vaccines back. And that obviously is a reflection of the political competition in these countries. So the current governments in Bangladesh and Maldives, for example, have a fairly positive relations with the Indian government. And therefore, political opposition and their supporters in those countries are resisting India's supply of these vaccines. So if we're talking political competition, the other country that was mentioned there, of course, China. China is also very active on the vaccine diplomacy front. Bali, I wonder to what extent this uh, vaccine diplomacy by India is also an effort to meet China, particularly in those smaller South Asian countries, which India views as its sphere of influence, but where China has made really significant inroads. To some extent, I would agree with that. Um, There is some sense of competition between India and China with regards to its global outreach with vaccines. But the point I'm trying to make is that I think India has just has a stronger track record in this space of manufacturing vaccines at a larger scale and that are affordably priced. And it has a track record of sort of shipping these vaccines, especially to countries in the global south. China is relatively new to this space. So for instance, Nepal has yet to give regulatory approval to the Chinese produced vaccine. However, it has has accepted shipments of the Indian-produced AstraZeneca. But if you actually think about the diplomatic resources that India has to sort of devote to this relative to China, uh, that's where it may fall short. As Pradeep mentioned, there's a lot that's happening in India domestically on the policy front. The Indian government is focused on rebuilding its economy. It has a relatively slim diplomatic cadre compared to China, who have sort of controlled the virus and their economy is on the path of recovery. So they can devote a lot more policy attention and resources towards the global outreach relative to India. And Pradeep, do you agree that it's a a competition? Do you think competition is the right word? And what are China's motivations? Are they similar to India's? Well, in China's case, Ali, one of the reasons why China has been so aggressive in supplying personal protective equipment and now vaccines to many developing countries is to deflect criticism, because China obviously has, has attracted a lot of criticism since the outbreak of this virus in Wuhan in, in November, December 2019. Since then, of course, the international media, particularly the Western media, has highlighted the attempts by the local authorities in Wuhan in China to cover up the outbreak of the virus. So China has attracted a lot of criticism. And I think this aggressive push by the Chinese government to supply personal protective equipment and and vaccines to other countries, particularly developing countries, is partly, I think, designed to deflect that criticism. But it is also consistent with China's overall push over the last couple of decades to supply financial assistance, international development assistance to other developing countries. And China has tried very hard to project itself as a responsible stakeholder. This is a demand which was made on China, in fact, by the United States when Robert Zollick used to be one of the senior administration officials uh, under the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration. There was uh, criticism of China that China had been a disruptive influence and China should be a responsible stakeholder. And part of the effort on the part of China is actually to be a responsible stakeholder in the international community. 
And if you look at how this China and, and India vaccine diplomacy plays out in the media, especially the social media, Pradeep, is there a fair bit of gloating going on? It appears that some of the uh, commentaries pretty vicious. There is certainly gloating in China about China's success at controlling coronavirus. Chinese media, nationalist media, have been pointing to the spread of the virus in Europe and the United States and the inability of the systems in these countries to control the virus. And President Xi Jinping himself has said that we are going through turbulent times globally, but we have the momentum. You know, China has the momentum. The China is in a better position than most other countries. And that, I think, in part was a reference to China's success at controlling coronavirus. But if you look at the social media regarding the vaccine diplomacy, I mean, China questions the efficacy about the Indian vaccines. India has things like some spread disease, some offer cure. In the social media space, uh, it, it's almost a tit for tat, isn't it? Well, there is a lot of tit for tat on social media between China and India. Uh, fortunately, I think uh, Twitter is not available to the Chinese public. Whereas Indian, you know, social media users are largely reliant on Twitter and Facebook and other social media platform, largely American social media platform, and they don't have access to China's Weibo because, you know, Weibo is largely in Chinese and therefore Indian users are not able to sign on and take on their Chinese counterparts in Chinese. So it could be a lot worse is what you're saying. So in many ways, the Chinese and the Indian social media users are existing in parallel universes. Bali, what about the domestic Indian audience? How do they consider vaccine diplomacy? And given that even though case numbers have fallen, as we discussed at the outset, the fact that there is still obviously uh, a battle with coronavirus in India, is there any sense that Indians should come first? Um, the discourse around vaccines in India, as well as India sending out vaccines uh, globally, is very genteel and accommodating. By and large, political parties, as well as reporters on social media, it is perceived positively that India is able to provide strength and succor to other countries that were still going through the pandemic. And they see this as an extension of India's past efforts. In the early middle of last year, India shipped around, similar to China, PPE equipment around the world and essential pharmaceutical products. The Indian government organized flights to bring home stranded Indians as well as citizens of neighboring countries. So it's sort of seen as an extension of India playing a role and assisting governments in the region and in other parts of the world that are still struggling to control the pandemic. Uh, but within India, there hasn't been a situation where it's seen of why aren't you prioritizing Indians as opposed to sending vaccines overseas. And this could also be in part explained by the fact that there's a sense that the virus isn't as virulent in India as it is in some other parts of the world. So there isn't a sense of urgency to get that vaccine. But as you've seen, infections began to rise in the states of Maharashtra and Kerala, that discourse may change. Pradeep, do you agree there with Bali that if the numbers start to rise, there could be a problem for the Modi government? Well, the, the reaction so far has been consistent along political lines. I mean, the supporters of Prime Minister Modi, of which there are many, they are quite proud for India to supply vaccines to other countries, and they feel that India is quite capable under Prime Minister Modi's you know, government is quite capable of 
both meeting the domestic demand for vaccines and supplying vaccines to you know, friendly and neighboring countries. But the critics of the Modi government have been critical of both the rollout of the vaccination program at home and also of this you know, big noting, for lack of a better word, of the Modi government to try and tell the world that India is the pharmacy to the world and India is going to supply vaccines to the rest of the world. So criticism so far has been largely, I think, along party political lines. But if the local vaccination program, it doesn't go according to plan. Prime Minister Modi has said that India will vaccinate 30 million people, largely healthcare workers and people with comorbidity and, and certain age, as Bali said earlier. But then by July or August, India would vaccinate about 300 million people. That is a big ask, considering over the last uh, month and a bit, only about 11 million doses of vaccine have been administered. I think achieving the target of 300 million by July or August is very ambitious. So if the rollout of vaccination doesn't go very well, I think we are going to see greater criticism. And particularly if these recent increases in infections in states like Maharashtra and Kerala, if it spreads to other states, then I think we are going to see a, a more negative, more adverse reaction from the general public. Pretty, why is it that it's left to countries like India and China and Russia to focus on vaccine diplomacy, to send vaccine offshore, when so many wealthy countries seem to be more about what's being called vaccine nationalism. I note that just last week, the leaders of the G7 nations did say that they'd give money and vaccines to the UN effort, but there is still a distinct lack of detail around many of those promises. Do you think it's fair to say that wealthy countries have essentially ceded the ground of vaccine diplomacy? And if they have, why is that? The criticism is fair that mostly developed countries have tried to acquire or, or reserve enough vaccines for their domestic consumption. And in fact, not just enough, but to buy many more you know, vaccines than are actually needed than, than the overall size of the population in many of these countries, in Europe, in the UK, for example. I think UK ordered about 90 million doses of vaccines, which is, of course, far in excess of the UK population. So uh, many of these countries, developed countries, have tried to you know, make sure that there are enough vaccines for their own use available and not really paid much attention to how the rest of the world, particularly the developing world, countries that do not have capability to produce their own vaccines, which is the vast majority of the developing countries, how they are going to cope with it. That I think has been largely neglected. And when President Trump was still in office, he had withdrawn or at least threatened to withdraw the United States from the World Health Organization and the COVAX program. And if that had been the case, if Biden administration had not come into the office and decided to rejoin the WHO, I think the impact on the developing world would have been much more severe. President Biden has now, I think, promised about $4 billion to COVAX, uh, which is quite a significant contribution. Overall, COVAX is about $18 billion. We're going to see, I think, even higher contribution from the United States. And United States has always been a role model. It's always been a trendsetter for large contributions to international organizations. And, and I'm glad that Biden administration has decided to return to WHO and to contribute significantly to the COVAX program.
Because Bali, I guess it goes without saying, doesn't it? Uh, but we'll say it anyway. But if uh, if you ignore the situation in the developing world and wealthy countries go off and vaccinate their entire populations, but you have other populations that are not vaccinated, then there's still the risk, isn't there? And the risk is posed to everyone. Yes, that's right. The efficacy of the vaccination program is it's a global public good. Countries will have to look beyond their national confines when they are developing their vaccination programs. You've seen the discourse in many of these countries on their vaccination programs to focus mostly on their citizens. Um, and once everybody is vaccinated, they will ship out vaccines to the rest of the world. But as you said, that's not going to be very useful because this virus is extremely dangerous and then newer strains of the virus that continue to appear every few months. So this has to be a global and concerted effort. It is indeed an enormous challenge. So let's hope that globally the vaccine rollout can proceed apace and we can actually get to a post-pandemic future. Uh, Bali and Pradeep, thank you so much for talking to Ear to Asia and for being so generous with your time and your insights. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you, Ellie. Our guests have been political scientist Dr Pradeep Tanisha of the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences and health policy researcher Dr Azad Bali of the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy at Australian National University. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 22nd of February 2021. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.